Salam and welcome to the Claritas Books podcast, where we explore a wide range of publications from history to halal branding and spirituality to storytelling. I'm journalist Ramona Ali, and in today's episode we ask, have Muslim scholars ever supported anti-blackness? Why didn't Islam ban slavery? And have we neglected black Muslim heritage? Another mistake I think we make is that we imagine Africa in particular, or blacks, as being a homogenous group, one homogenous group of people, you know, with the same language, same religion, same experiences. Right? But Africa, what we know as Africa today, has never been that just to have that sort of cultural recognition within the sort of framework of, you know, an Islamic event or something can be quite significant for certain people who have just never been to an event where they've heard like a black imam speak or they've never heard, you know, stories from their history in terms of being Muslim in Africa. So I think when it comes to what the community can do, it's validating those spaces and validating the experiences of black Muslims. Um, But we also have to do that for ourselves as well in any way that we can. For me, it starts with with us most importantly, and that will have a ripple effect. And it really has. I felt in the last five years, there's been an extended interest into the story and lives of black Muslims that I'd never saw during my younger teenage years. We explore these themes through the compelling book, The Negro in Arab Muslim Consciousness, by African-American scholar, Sheikh Dr. Abdullah bin Hamid Ali. Sheikh Abdullah is the founding director of the Lampost Education Initiative, which explores Islamic tradition through contemporary American Muslim thinkers. He's also an assistant professor of Islamic law and prophetic tradition at Zaytuna College in California, which was the first accredited Muslim college in the US. Sheikh Abdullah, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Manchester. Wa alaikum salam Yeah, it's happy to be here. Yeah, you've just landed, you've come across all the way across the pond That's right. and landed in this beautiful city uh, this morning. So we're very grateful to you for taking us through your thought-provoking book. And you used the word Negro in the title, yes. which some of us find uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read that in 2013, the US uh, Census Bureau dropped the word as a classification of race because it was offensive. So where did the term come from? And is it acceptable to use it today? Well, you know, the word Negro in Spanish and in Portuguese, it just simply means black. Uh, it's, it's a word that translates as black. And according to some scholars, the word Negro was, um, was introduced during the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, and it was utilized to refer to, of course, blacks who were slaves, uh, or some would say actually it was used, utilized to refer to blacks after they were set free, whereas the more offensive N-word was utilized for those who were slaves. And, and we know that it continued, it was utilized even after that. But Negro itself sort of stuck uh, around that time. And, and many people during the turn of the 20th century, many of the freed blacks, uh, they appropriated the term and they embraced it and it wasn't something they saw to be offensive. Uh, you find you know, people like Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington, uh, many people who continue to utilize the term and, you, and then sometimes if you look at study the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, it, sometimes he would, often they would say the so-called American Negro. Uh, so it wasn't so much a, an offensive term. To understand this, you have to go back to what young brother here referred to as the house Negro and the field Negro back during slavery. 
There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. What he left. And as an African-American yourself, I really wanted to talk about the, the nation of Islam and how influential has that been on African-American Muslims? The nation of Islam has been highly influential. As a matter of fact, my family comes through the nation of Islam experience, my mother and father. They, they came to Islam through uh, the, we call the first resurrection. The nation of Islam, still even to this very day, I would say that many people see it as true Islam. Right. You know, the, the, the real Muslims are the ones like them, you know, who follow Farrakhan and actually are concerned with the community. They they talk about community issues. They talk about combating white supremacy and things like that. Now, of course, that's changing. And I think it will continue to change uh, in time, especially with more and more people becoming Muslims, you know. But the Nation of Islam was a, a very powerful movement and it and helped to transform the, uh, I guess, the attitudes of many people, uh, especially with regard to people becoming entrepreneurs, people feeling self-reliant, people feeling confident about in, uh, about who they are, and, and increasing self-esteem, right? Which blacks, you know, you know really they suffered in those areas uh, for a very long time in the U.S. And so things have changed over time. And so many people, many people I know that that I, I deal with are not offended by the word Negro, but they are uh, offended by the other, the other N-word. And so because of the, 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 the things that are negative about it, there are certain scholars, in particular in the civil rights era, like Richard B. Moore, for instance, who argued that we should abandon the use of the word because it has a negative history. Uh, on the other hand, Carter G. Woodson argued, well, it really doesn't matter what the name is. We could make the name positive or something great in the same way that other and people make this name. Right, exactly, mm-hmm. right. I've come to a beautiful community hub in London called Rumi's Cave, which runs cultural, spiritual and social projects. It's got a lovely vibe to it. There's quotes from Rumi on the walls, there's calligraphy, there's turquoise everywhere. And I'm currently sitting in the cafe having tea with two of its regulars, Hafsa Dabiri and Muhammad Muhammad. Salam, guys. Thanks so much for joining me. Walaikum salam. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so just tell us a little bit about yourselves. We'll start with Muhammad. Yeah, my name is my name is Muhammad Muhammad. Um, I'm a Somali living in London. I'm a teacher, a poet, and uh, the co-founder of Black and Muslim in Britain, the online video series. Great. And I'm Hafsa Dabiri. Um, I'm a Nigerian living in London um, and I'm a student of politics and international relations. And I've recently authored my first children's book called Basira the Basketballer Says Inshallah. Which sounds brilliant, which we will talk about later. <laughs> um, would you identify yourselves as black British Muslims? Hafsa, I'll start with you. Yeah, no, 100%. I think um, there's a lot more to my identity than that. But I see no reason why I wouldn't identify myself as black and and British and Muslim because I am those three things. But I think one of the things for me is just who's asking? Um, Because I think the context really does depend on whether or not I would subscribe to the person's definition of what those things mean. But in terms of myself as an individual, definitely, yeah. Mohammed? Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Um, The... I'm very conscious that there is a tug and war with the understanding of what it means to be British 
and what it means to uh, what Britishness manifests as for mm. the young person, the young person who's coming from different ethnic uh, racial backgrounds and how that fits into their own identity. But as someone who's been in London since the age of two, it's very hard for me to remove that identity from me because if I was to ever go back to Somalia on holiday, uh, I'd be known as the fish and chip Somali or this person, he's an, he's an outsider. The fish and chips Somali. Um, the fish and chips Somali. <laughs> so like, that's something that my cousins have experienced when they've gone back to Somalia and anyone of the diaspora. So um, I'm very confident in saying that I'm black. I'm very confident in saying, um, describing my ethnicity as Somali. And I'm very comfortable in saying that I'm British in that process as well as uh, the most significant factor, my, my, my relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and being a Muslim, I'm very comfortable, confident with that as well. Considering that the British Muslim community are largely from a South Asian background, have you ever felt left out of the conversation, of the experience of the British Muslim identity? Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, even growing up, I initially went to a primary school that was predominantly, it was an Islamic primary school, so predominantly people from South Asian backgrounds and um, from Arab backgrounds. And I, as a, you know five-year-old going into that primary school experience I think it was very difficult to recognize what my blackness meant in relation to my Islam because everything was so cultured and it was very biryani for lunch and like I went home and I'd be like yeah biryani is like Muslim food (laughs) Um, and then for the second half of my primary school experience I went to a public primary school um, and it was predominantly um, black people um, but they were from a Christian background and they'd go to the local church every Sunday and everyone would sort of rally around um, their faith and their blackness and, you know, what it meant to be black in Britain. Um, And I felt it difficult to sort of, you know, place my Islam within that dynamic as well. So I kind of had to pick and choose who I wanted to be in certain situations. Um, And it wasn't until I found communities for myself in sort of South London. um, There's a mosque called Man Mosque, which is um, a Nigerian association. And you realise that there is so much wealth and history within um, sort of being a black Muslim um, within the British context. Um, And I think it's only when you have those spaces that you can receive that knowledge and receive that sort of um, stability within your identity or support within your identity Um, but yeah no definitely I've had a number of experiences where I've um, found that Islam is very supportive of culture but the western media and the way that we portray ourselves it's very Asianified, if that's a word. Um, It is now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been very difficult I think yeah. Sheikh Abdullah the book explores the subject in Arab Muslim consciousness. Mm-hmm. Why this specifically? I wanted to highlight Arab Muslim consciousness because being an Arab in the pre-modern world did not necessarily connote some sort of homogenous racial group in that was identified by color. Uh, rather, people could become Arabs, right? And so even the many of people that we consider to be Africans themselves were themselves appropriating Arab culture or they themselves were claiming to be Arabs or they became uh, Arab, Arabized people through uh, the embrace of Arab culture. And this is because the nature of race in the pre-modern world was, it allowed for this, you know, for easy movement in and out of different sort of racial categories. And did uh, embracing yeah. that mean knowing Arabic or like taking on the customs? Or right, exactly. That yeah. mean? Knowing it, it Arabic and you know, developing fluency, fluency in the Arabic language, uh, embracing Arab cultural identifiers, but making the point that 
that to be an Arab is not like being a black person today, right? You know, in the sense that people mm. understand it. has a much it. broader right. understanding Yeah, we of think it, yeah. of like race as like biological, in biological terms, genetic terms, you know, so mm. as opposed to simply cultural terms. Right. And you mention in your book that mm. there are some hadith, mm -hmm. some of the narrations of the Prophet Muhammad, mm -hmm. peace be upon him, that actually, in your words, are, are disparaging to black people. Mm -hmm. Could you highlight one or two of them and just unpack them for us? Yeah, uh, sure. There, there are multiple hadith which are attributed to the Prophet, uh, which are disparaging uh, of blacks. And one of them actually says directly, la khayra fil habash, that there's no, there's no goodness in blacks or there's no good, goodness in Abyssinians. Another one, it says, Zanj wa al-abd al-aswad wa al-aswad idha ja'a saraq wa idha shabi'a zana that whenever a black person is hungry, they steal, and whenever they're sated, they commit fornication. And you find multiple hadiths like this. But I mean, they're pretty shocking hearing that. And scholars of hadith they were very clear, for the most part, about the spuriousness of these hadiths, of these apocryphal hadith. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Ibn, Ibn Qayyim and Josiah explicitly said that all of the hadith that, that disparage blacks are fabricated, that there's lies on the Prophet Isaiah. So, um, that being uh, the case, uh, of course, it doesn't mean that simply because they're deemed to be spurious, it didn't lead certain scholars to accept them or embrace them. There are some scholars who embrace them as, as being authentic. But just the very fact that it, you do find these hadith that do uh, exist in the early hadith collections, it lets you know that there was definitely something happening which uh, was troubling, I guess you would say. It could naturally trouble the conscience of, of people who were identified with these particular groups. I don't mean to be too mm. provocative, but mm -hmm. can we trust the interpretations of the scholars? These are the heirs of the Prophet, so how do we reconcile some of their black antipathy right. to, to Islam and, and our expression. This is a good it. question. I mean, and this is one thing I, I deal with. Uh, I think it comes up a couple of times. I, I make the, the point that while we respect the scholars and we admire them and we benefit from the, the, the legacy that they passed on from the early period about the Prophet himself, that we, uh, we also remind ourselves that being the heir of the prophet is exactly that, that you're an heir of the prophets, but that doesn't make you a prophet, right? Meaning that uh, the infallibility that we attribute to the prophets, we don't attribute to the scholars. So a scholar is fallible where the prophets, you know, according to mainstream teachings, are not fallible. So, so, so once you realize this or you, 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 you acknowledge this fact about the scholars, then I believe that it becomes easier for you to deal with any of the foibles that they have or any of their negative attributes, because everybody has negative attributes. As a matter of fact, uh, scholars such as Imam Qushayri, one of the famous Sufi scholars, even says about the Sufis that he said that is not permissible for a, uh, an initiate into the past to believe that their sheikh is infallible. Right? So this is um, something, even, something even taught in Sufism, right? that you're not supposed to see the scholar as to be infallible. Right? So anytime you find a hadith which berates a person or a group of people, uh, and they're attributed, and those words are attributed to the Prophet, um, that you should know right away that uh, the Prophet did not say it, or at least he didn't say it in the way that is being related about him because the Prophet did not berate people. He did not disparage people. 
Uh, and uh, so that's one good way to know that a hadith uh, is either inauthentic or at least the prophet has been misquoted. I think that's a really important point. Um, the first martyr of Islam, uh, Sumeya, was an mm. Abyssinian woman. And mm -hmm. I've grown up like knowing that she was, it was a female who was the first martyr mm -hmm. of, of, of Islam. Mm. But not that she was black. That wasn't mm -hmm. something that I was told. Mm -hmm. Do you think we as a community neglect that aspect of the stories that we tell and retell? Yeah, I think that there's definitely a neglect, but I, but I would say that it starts with scholars, a scholarly neglect, and so and it's, it's it's transferred, you know, into sort of Muslim culture as well. So the the masses or the populist Muslim populace, I would say, are less responsible for. Attitudes. For, right for yeah. the attitudes you know that they have you know it's a cycle it's a vicious cycle. In, in, a, in a sense it's like you know your culture produces the scholar and the scholar you know sort of reinforces the things that the culture itself uh, produces I, I often like to comment on movies like the message for instance I mean it's a very moving movie but one thing that I didn't know when I was watching it years ago when I was younger was that uh, there are a lot of historical inaccuracies that in, in particular with relationship to how the people looked so my uh it is the custom it is wrong the gods that let such things be are no gods i promise to go to muhammad's house mother we pray there yes he's a good man so, so when it comes to sumeya in particular it i do think that it hasn't been highlighted enough and not that you always have to highlight, for instance, the race or we say the color of the individual, right? But it is interesting that it's not widely known that she was herself an Ethiopian, right? Ethiopian woman, Abyssinian woman. Yeah. Hafsa, I mean, you're a student and you've already become a children's book author. Tell us a little bit more about that and why you felt the need to write it. So the main character, Basira, is a little girl. She's black, she wears a hijab, and obviously she plays basketball. Um, and I think it sort of plays on my experiences with sport, but then it also is a journey of Basira uh, learning about herself, learning about her character, building her character, but then also developing a belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just developing on that. Um, and I think for me, the most important reason why I wrote it was because of the need for there to be representation of black Muslim girls within the literature that our kids are reading um, and I think when I was growing up there, there just wasn't that representation in wider literature but even more specifically in terms of how we as Muslims represent ourselves within children's books there just wasn't any 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 black girls um, so for me it was really important that I did that for myself and that I sort of championed that within the community and reading and writing is is the first sort of experiences that we have with creativity within within an educational environment and if you can't see yourself within a book how are you supposed to imagine yourself as different things and have have dreams and aspirations the way that other people can when they see themselves within books so for me i just felt like it just needs to be there and it's it's the least that can be done to support ourselves and our community and what's the response been like to it oh it's quite interesting to be honest um i think i thought 
who's going to hate a little girl playing basketball? Like, who's going to hate it? But funnily enough, even when we just put out the initial cover, I had angry Arab dads messaging me on Twitter saying that their young daughters can't read this book and that I have, like, singled out their daughters and I've, like, made it so that, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on black girls and, like, so their kids can't read it. And for me, I think when I get responses like that, it just shows that the book is even more needed um, and you can't sort of argue with people like that but it definitely just sort of pushed me to want to write more but yeah I think it's most of the feedback has been has been amazing I've had parents saying that you know their daughters would read books and say oh I want blonde hair and I want green eyes and um, and now that she's she's able to sort of allow her daughter to see herself within books and you know it's just been an amazing experience I think yeah Wonderful. Well, you, when you get the negatives, when you get the trolls, you know you're winning. Yeah. That's what I've been told. 100%. 100%. 100%. I think that's really, that's really interesting about the, the social media uh, backlash mm. that it could never be Muslim enough mm. if, it, if mm. it wasn't lighter skin yeah. and of that narrow background. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sums up mm-hmm. what many of us talk about, about the black Muslim experience in the UK mm-hmm. uh, and sure this is a similar case in places in the Americas mm-hmm. um, as well as parts of the Middle East where there is a strong community of, of black Muslims in those spaces the challenges they face mm-hmm. are often quite universal yeah and I think it also because a lot of the rhetoric that I was getting online as well was that because I was focusing on sort of the colour of the girl being depicted, um, I was, like, dividing the ummah and, like, I was therefore doing something that was really haram. And for me, I just... I found it laughable, but, again, it's the idea of when you homogenise a community, they get re... I think even when you homogenise a community, there's always one idea or one cause that will be championed the most that's just how how things work you're never going to have an equal sort of um, addressing of the topics and so when it's not them at the forefront and when it's not them always being represented suddenly they're the victims in the situation and I think that's that's part of the issue also what I'm really interested in this uh, according to the biblical explanation for different you know, colours on earth, different people on earth now. Uh, it says that we're all descendants of Noah's three sons. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the curse of mm-hmm. Ham, curse uh, of Ham the, right. one of the sons of right. Noah. Yes. How has that affected attitudes towards black people or towards race? <laughs> yeah, the curse of Ham. The curse of Ham fundamentally is the, the idea that results from, in the biblical story, it was uh, Noah supposedly got, he, he got drunk and he fell asleep, fell into a swoon, and he was naked. And when his son Ham had approached and saw him naked, instead of covering him, he he laughed. You know, but when his other two sons came, they covered his nakedness. And as a result of that, it, it is said that Noah had cursed Ham and the offspring of Ham to be the slaves of his brothers. Right. And that is the biblical interpretation. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a biblical Talmudic uh, inter- inter- and interpretation of it. And that particular interpretation was reinforced by many of the individuals who were involved in the transatlantic slave trade, right? So many of them actually justified slavery on that basis because fundamentally said every all the that blacks are the descendants of Ham, then the enslavement is justified. And mm-hmm. how did the Muslim scholarship address No, this that? never became orthodox orthodoxy amongst Muslims. But there were some scholars who accepted the theory, like Imam al-Tabari, for instance, you know, who accepted the story about the curse of Ham. Right? But most of the Muslim scholars did not 
deem it to be a valid story to uphold uh, uh, that uh, that blacks were uh, the descendants of Ham and that they were enslaved. So, for instance, you find someone like Ibn Khaldun who outright rejects it and 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 considers it to be a flimsy a flimsy argument. But um, some of the early scholars did accept it as 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 true. I wanted to now address a really mm-hmm. difficult topic, mm-hmm. which is about slavery and mm-hmm. Islam. Mm-hmm. Why was slavery not directly banned by the Prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad, peace mm-hmm. be upon him? Mm-hmm. And how did he address the issue of slavery? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to say exactly like why the Prophet did not, let's say, for instance, ban slavery or have an emancipation procl- proclamation like uh, Lincoln uh, had in the U.S., or abolish it in the same way like the U.K. had done prior to uh, the U.S. abolishing it. But I personally believe that it has very much to do with the fact that, one, that slavery was a, an internationally acknowledged or accepted moral system. Now, Islam did not allow for a Muslim to just enslave for any reason. You know, in particular, Islam limited the avenues for slavery. So, for one, a way to become a slave is through captivity, right? You lose a war, you lose a battle, you can be made into a slave. And that's one the primary way that a person becomes a slave. Uh, and so people in this world, they saw their slaves as property. And so with the Prophet, concerned about individuals uh, embracing Islam willfully, right? and you find this throughout the Quran, emphasizing the importance of willful acceptance of the religion and not compelling anyone to do anything, and also promising that the rewards that they get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they are contingent upon the individual having the right intention and being sincere, that the Prophet did not want to risk uh, people losing the reward for setting people free. So the Quran incentivizes uh, uh, emancipation or manumission. It upholds it as a type of moral uh, imperative, I would even say, that that one get that impression. So it was a moral imperative rather than a legal duty. Right, exactly, not a legal Mm -hmm. duty. Right, exactly. Uh, So so, so it's it's clear from the Quran, anybody who reads the Quran, it's clear that freedom is upheld as the more I- the ideal condition for all human beings. Yeah. Which is a, yeah. well, it's a deeper issue then because yeah. it's like it's, it goes in your mindset, in your psyche, mm. uh, and also it's a spiritual aspiration. You, you get right. paradise if you, That's right. if you right. free a slave. Right, so exactly. Was, multiple things, yeah, incentivize, the prophet incentivized in more, a lot of different ways. Yeah, so. Really mm-hmm. fascinating. So how do you feel that we as Muslim communities in general should come together to explore and celebrate black Muslim heritage and culture? I've come to the point where I've felt the need to take ownership without expectation. And, and that's not an attack on the wider community. Sometimes if you feel that it's not happening and those voices aren't listening to you, then you just do it yourself. And as a spoken word poet, how have you kind of expressed any of that identity or the frustrations in your own work? Oh yeah, most certainly. Um, most of my earlier writings have always been heavily politically driven, and in those cases as well, that was me being very uh, outspoken about my my heritage and my background, and speaking about my Somaliness and speaking about my experience as a Black Muslim in in, in the UK. When wealth is shared, look at Mansa's crown. 
When knowledge is spread, Miss Asma'u's in town. When the butterfly sings, dark Ali's around. Black Muslims reigning change, this is history now. When they call the Adhan, I remember Bilal. When she holds Rasul, remember Um Ayman. When I've lost my voice, Malcolm never lets down. We can never forget, we can never forget black Muslims of our time. This is history now. <laughs> And for me, that it starts with, with us most importantly, and that will have a ripple effect. And it really has. I felt in the last five years, there's been a, 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 an extended interest mm. into the story and lives of black Muslims that I'd never saw during my younger teenage years. No one ever thought about our identities as important as it is now, because we've taken our ownership and we've led it, and people have had no choice but to say, Okay, we really need to listen. And it's a shame it has to get to that point. But at least we are here with this current platform that we're, we're giving. And these kind of books that are coming out and books that you're publishing yourself has a, pulls people into our, our stories. And for me, that's one of the biggest achievements that I've seen in, in, in my current lifetime. Yeah, I think I completely agree. I think um, from, from a different perspective, I think initially before stepping out and sharing stories there's a lot of trauma that needs to be healed within the community first so we have the discovery talk show that is basically a safe space for black muslims and wider muslims as well if they feel comfortable coming into the space to just sit down and discuss issues that are pertinent with them as muslims trying to exist within the uk and i think to have spaces like that where you can determine the tone of the conversation what you're talking about not having your blackness feel questioned in that space or your muslimness feel questioned in that space is really important um, and i think that also links to the idea of just black muslim spaces in general like i get a lot of um sort of hate for promoting black muslim spaces but i think i think the assumption of black muslim spaces is that they're not open to other people but i don't think that's that's what black muslim spaces are about i think it's just about having a, a level of comfortability for black muslims within those spaces so maybe it's having jollof rice instead of biryani and that's literally what it is um but just to have that sort of cultural recognition within the the sort of framework of you know an islamic event or something can be quite significant for certain people who have just never been to an event where they've heard like a black imam speak or they've never heard you know stories from their history in terms of being muslim in africa so i think when it comes to what the community can do it's validating those spaces and validating the experiences of black muslims um, but we also have to do that for ourselves as well in any way that we can and I, I don't like to say that the onus is on the community that goes through the trauma, but I do think that some people like Mohammed are strong enough to sort of create these platforms for black Muslims and we just have to continue promoting them. Thank you so much, Hafsa and Mohammed, for your time and all of your insights, which are just fascinating. So thank you so much again. Thank okay. you. Thank yeah, you very thank much. You. It's been me. amazing. Okay. <laughs> Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Sheikh Abdullah, you say that anti-black sentiment was uh, more targeted of a specific people within Africa. So have we, as humans, generalized it and made prejudice pandemic? So in the African continent, you may find someone who looks like me, who speaks a different language, who has a different religion, right? And you put us side by side, and some people and put us in the picture, but you say, okay, well, same people. They, they, they must be, be the same, and they have a lot in common. But we may not see ourselves as having anything in common. We say, no, we're not the same people, right? But another mistake I think we make is that we imagine Africa in particular, or blacks, as being a homogenous group, one homogenous 
group of people, you know, with the same language, same religion, same experiences. Right? But Africa, what we know as Africa today, has never been that. It's never been the case. You, know? you also mentioned that there are some interpretations that the Prophet himself might have been black. Prophet Muhammad himself might have been uh, a black man. Could you take us through them and give us your own conclusions? I don't believe that it's appropriate to call the prophet black. I also believe it's not appropriate to call the prophet white, right? And it's because of all the baggage that those terms have in in, in contemporary times. You know, what would you, you what would you call him then? He was Arab. <laughs> <laughs> the prophet Salaam was Arab, yeah. but but it's it's the norm to hear Muslims say he was white, and you know, and then get become outraged <laughs> when we say he's black, you know, because it's a type of we're disparaging the prophet. If, if black people themselves have an obligation to see themselves as, I guess, freaks of nature, that, you know, that we have to see blackness as a bad thing. And, mm. and that in itself is a, an unreasonable demand to make on people. Thank you so much, Sheikh mm-hmm. Abdullah, for yeah. joining Thank us you. for this discussion today. Thank, Lord, you. Thank, Thank you. you so much for all of your wisdom and your mm-hmm. knowledge. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Same here. Appreciate it. I've been your host, Ramona Ali. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can explore more works at www.claritasbooks.com.